So if you will find your way to 1 Corinthians 1, I'm, I will reference um, Acts chapter 17 and Acts 18. You know, we just came back from district council in Mobile. We were there for Sunday night, all day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Six services, six messages we got preached to. And it was great preaching. Uh, Doug Clay, our, our uh, new general superintendent, was elected a couple of years ago, preached some tremendous messages. And it was geared to kind of encourage us um, as pastors and leaders. Howard Reynolds, any of, anybody that remembers that name? Brother Howard Reynolds was there. I got a chance to talk to him and hug his neck. Uh, great influence. Um, boy, it was just good to be in a place where you just got ministered to. Um, now, the title you probably in your hand, in the handout, like, what is that about? I think it's exactly, can, can a church thrive in a corrupt culture? And it probably could use some improvements. Um, maybe it should say, can the church thrive in a corrupt culture? And the answer to that is, yes. But the one variable that we might look at that is how corrupt. Some cultures are more corrupt than other cultures, right? Uh, does that change the answer to that question? Because you think about when Jesus said, I will build my church, the church, not a church, the church. He said that, that hell would not have a chance to stop it. That's pretty much what he said. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, he said, there's nothing that can stop what I'm going to do. There's no power in hell. There's no evil force that can suffocate what I'm going to do. And Jesus gave an indication of his power when he said that it's transforming effect. There's no place on the planet that could keep that from happening. We thought for a long time when... Mao Zedong took over China and all of our missionaries and all evangelical missionaries were kicked out of China. And everybody worried about, well, what is the church going to do? Because we had a different uh, strategy. A lot of our missionaries were pastoring congregations. And when that happened, most mission agencies had to radically change how they do things. That they would not be the pastors. They would raise up pastors for the indigenous church. And it changed how... Everything was taking place in missions, just in case that another country went communist and kicked out all religious workers, all missionaries. And when J. Philip Hogan, who was one of those missionaries kicked out of China, was able, when China opened back up, he went back into the region where he was a missionary. This was years later, and he was wondering if there was anything left of the congregations that he was working with. Not only did he find that there were people there, these are sons and daughters and grandchildren, some of them, but he had one man walk up to him and said, you know, the gospel of John meant so much to me when it was given to me. And he said, I've, I've, I couldn't keep it to myself because so many do not have a written copy of any part of the Bible, so I gave it to someone else so they could have it. And he says, well, how much have you retained of the Gospel of John? And he started in, in, of course, Chinese. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he went on several verses, and, and Brother Hogan stopped him and says, how much of the Gospel of John have you memorized? He said, oh, all of it. 
said, because we don't, we, we couldn't hold on to what we had. We had to give it. And not only did they find out that they survived all of that communist suppression, the church exploded. And it's estimated that 30,000 Chinese a day are coming to Jesus. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he was not underestimating his power that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. But if you look at Jerusalem and you look at the kind of culture that the church was birthed out of, we may think that that culture wasn't as corrupt as other parts of the world. But it could have been just as corrupt, right? It's ultra-religious, but Jesus even called them frauds, hypocrites. That's what the word hypocrites is not really. Hypocrites has come from the Greek word hypocrites, meaning an actor, one who is role-playing, not the real person, but it's just a person who takes on an, like a stage character. And he said, that's who you are. You're whited sepulchers. You're like snakes. You're full of dead men's bones. So in reality, the church was birthed in a corrupt culture, was it not? Jerusalem was that. The powers that would be, they used bribery. They used bribery to convict Jesus of blasphemy. They had false witnesses. They were paying people off. They were paying soldiers off. They, the money was flowing to, to betray Jesus and also to uh, convict him of blasphemy. Did the church, Christ's church, thrive in that corrupt culture? Yes, it did. And I think we would say, yes, when the first martyr, Stephen, died at the feet of Saul of Tarsus, that man became one of the greatest leaders of the church. And he was part of that culture, right? He was oblivious to the purpose of God. He was fighting Jesus and didn't realize he was fighting the purpose of God. It took a revelation. So here's Paul, once an ultra-Orthodox Jewish man, now packing his bags and heading off into teeth of Roman paganism with the gospel of Christ. And this is where you pick it up in Acts 17. I'm actually going to focus more on Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 1 because that's when Paul shows up at Corinth. But here's Paul heading down from Berea, goes into Athens, one of the famous cities of the Greek empire, but lost much of its prestige. And he's in Athens, and he's by himself, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, Timothy to show up, his other team members. And he was, it seems like from what we read in Acts 17 that he was just not going to do anything. He was going to wait for his team to get there. But he looked around, and I love what this one translation uh, translates, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, it irked his spirit within him to see the city so full of idols. It distressed, I think, is uh, maybe some of the translation, but it just, he was upset to see so much idolatry. After all, he was a Decalogue man. He, those first two commandments have no other God, monotheistic, no graven image. And everywhere he looked, there were temples and images and graven things, graven images, and he couldn't help himself. So he went into the synagogue and he started teaching and preaching to the, the Jewish people and the God-fearing people. And when the philosophers of Athens got wind of it, they brought him out into the, the town square, so to speak. And they wanted to debate him or discuss the philosophies. And they really thought that, who is this guy? Is he a charlatan? He's trying to peddle something new. 
And so it doesn't seem that he had much success there in Athens. So in chapter 18, he goes on down to Corinth and uh, he waits. And when Timothy and Silas gets there, he starts preaching and there's response. And Corinth is a different story. There's people responding. Some of them are baptized. The church is birthed. The Lord reveals to Paul. And I really, I don't want to read into this. But the Lord appears to Paul, and this is what he says to him. He says, do not worry about physical harm coming to you. Now, if the Lord shows up and tells you in a vision, don't worry about physical harm, would that give you some sense of thinking that there might be physical harm? But he says, don't worry about physical harm. Stay here. And I just take it that Paul was looking around and says, you know, we need to move on to other places. And why did the Lord tell Paul to stay there? It's the last part of that verse. He said, because I have many people in this city. Paul just saw pagans. He saw, for the most part, the most idolatrous place. It was worse than Athens. Because Corinth was five times the size of Athens at that juncture. First century Corinth was the place to be. It was the Las Vegas. It was the best place to be for any partying you wanted to do. And there was shrines everywhere. There was all kinds of pleasure-seeking opportunities. And, and it was just beaming with economy. Julius Caesar went in about 44 B.C. and says, this place is too, too strategically planted to, for us not to use it in the trade industry. So Corinth became the trade route. Uh, ships coming into one port and ships coming into the other port. So Corinth was booming. And yet the Lord had to tell Paul, do not leave here. All these people you see that are so awful, some of them belong to me. I wonder when the Lord looks around us and we're praying for people, I wonder if he needs to tell us, hang in there with them because they really belong to me. They just don't know they belong to me. They're pre-believers, but I know who's going to be coming. And he's telling Paul, don't you leave this city. Don't you leave Corinth. As much as you want to, you're repelled by what you see, don't you leave there. You keep preaching. And he stayed there for 18 months. He stayed there for a full year and a half preaching. So this is Corinth. This is the birth of the church. This is the birth of the church in Corinth. So I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're not going to track all of chapter 1, but just track this with me on your, on your handout because it really comes down to how can the church thrive in any culture. Not only can the church thrive in a corrupt culture, but how can the church thrive in any culture? And so this is the question of holiness. And that word means different things to different people. But I want you to follow this with me and just, you know, jot down some things I want to share with you. This is the very first verse. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Twice 
Paul identifies the Corinthian church as being holy. First of all, he uses the verb to those sanctified. And first, he calls them the church of God in Corinth. Now, we have the church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, and we have the church of God in Anderson, Indiana, but this predates them. This is the church of God in Corinth, in Corinth of all places. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, it means to be made holy. It's the verb that he looked upon. Paul looked upon these people. Now, when you read much further into Corinthians, it's like, really? He was saying to these people that they were sanctified. They didn't sound like they were sanctified. And, and this is where our doctrine and our theology sometimes does not fit the way God looks at things. Because we look at sanctification as somewhat of a completeness of getting rid of all the problems in your life. It could say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. And, and, it's, and it's a most of it's been a matter of what you don't do. And yet he's, he's calling these people, they're doing plenty to negate him saying to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. But there it is. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he says, call to be holy people. And, and you might say saints in your translation, but it really means people who are holy. Holy people. We, we don't call each other saints because we don't think we've arrived yet. But what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean when he says they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and that's a past tense. He says, it's not something that you need to be sanctified. He says that to those who are already sanctified in Christ Jesus, it means this, that when the Lord saved these people, he set them apart for his purpose. And them fulfilling that purpose was the problem. They had all kinds of stuff going on, and Paul was pulling them into fulfilling what that was already spoken over them. We tend to think of uh, sanctification as external, how we dress, how we speak, uh, the external part of our lives, what we don't do. But in God's economy, it's what he's purposed for us. And he's called us to be holy people, a community of faith. And then he says this, together with all those, you're part of all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He saw them through the eyes of God's purpose. And he declared in the early parts of this letter that they are sanctified. They're set apart. They're holy people. God has called them. But they were challenged in how they lived that out. There, there was the problem there. And remember, these people came out of a pagan culture. It's hard for me to describe. I don't think we, when we read about Corinth that we understand at all what that city was looking like. It, it had everything that was wrong in society celebrated. Everything. A thousand prostitutes. Prostitution was everywhere. All kinds of stuff was everywhere. It was the place to seek anyone that had a hedonistic vein. This was the place you wanted to be. And this is where the church was birthed out of in, in that culture. But God had something for them that they weren't experiencing yet. I don't think you'll ever see Paul inferring that the people in Corinth were not authentic believers. 
Because there's some people that want to read this and look at all the problems and really kind of insinuate that maybe they weren't really saved. They were frauds like, like the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But that is not what Paul says. So these are authentic people of God. And he tells them, I mean, you don't have to go too far in 1 Corinthians. And especially when you get to chapter 5, when there's a, a sexual deviancy going on in the church that Paul has to call it out and, and demand and require the church to use church discipline. And he said what was going on in the church really was kind of like not even in pagan practice going on. And this was in the church. When you get to chapter 5, you'll find out that Paul tells him, says, I'm not telling you to shy away from all of these sins because if you did that, you wouldn't be witnessing to anybody in the city. He says, but in the church, we can judge in the church. We have the right to look at the church and say, this is present in the church. It should be present. You need to deal with it. And this was a question of holiness. But there's also the question of grace. I tell you what, if you want just uh, to read anything that would body slam you spiritually, just read anything by A.W. Tozier. Read Knowledge of the Holy. Read The Crucified Life. Read any of those things, and you just feel like you're just being body slammed spiritually. And one of the things Tozier talks about, and he was talking about it in the 50s, about how bad the American culture was in the 50s. He was, he was perplexed that the American church was not what it should be in power and demonstration of the things of God. And yet he really talked about cheap grace and costly grace. And he used Dietrich Bonhoeffer as someone who did not shy away from costly grace. That while most of his family got out of Germany during uh, Hitler's reign, he got with them in England, and he couldn't take it. He couldn't take, he says, why, how can I go back into Germany, no matter what happens in this war, how can I go back into Germany and help the nation recover when I wasn't willing to face the consequences of what was going on? And he went back on his own. As you know, he was executed under Hitler's authority. Costly grace. This is in verse 4 where he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. First, he calls them holy people, sanctified people. He says, now you're grace people. God has given you grace in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and says, for in him, in the Lord, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He really has confidence in God's purpose in them and the grace of God in them. He goes on to say in verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into communion, fellowship, into a community of faith with, with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you read 4 through 9, is there any better affirming words that Paul could write to this church? He is firm in his correction. He, when he gets to correcting them, he, he, 
he puts the hammer down on him. He tightens it down because he loves him. But he would never make these people out to be fake and frauds and pagans masquerading as believers. And you don't have to get that from Paul. I think Paul might have known these people a little bit better than we know them. And there's people look at this, look at this church, and they want to like dismiss anything that they were doing good because they had so much bad going on. They had so much things out of order. And that's where grace comes in, doesn't it? That the grace of God rescues our destiny. The grace of God rescues our future. He sees our future. He saw their future. And, he, and he's moved Paul to write this corrective letter because he wants them to experience everything that God has for them. And the place of grace is where they had their fellowship with Christ and with each, with each other. And there's that first problem that comes up after this that Paul deals with. We're about to get into correction here. And I don't think he buttered these people up. It's like, well, I said a lot of nice things and asked time they hit them. What do you think that the first thing he would deal with them about? Unity. Now, we like, man, there's a, there's a lot more problems they got than having hero worship. That's the first thing he deals with. He lays us out that the grace of God is on them and that they're separated into God. They're holy people. I'm not saying that. He said that. And in verse 9, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. This is the question of unity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. That is just about asking for a miracle. All of us have different tastes in this room. We have different ideas, different opinions. Could he be saying something like that to us? Be careful not to have division, disunity. And what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and I love the latter part of verse 10, and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. That you come together in a perfect unity in mind and thought. And he says, I've heard something about you guys. I've heard from Chloe's household that there's problems. There's quarrels. What I'm, he says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. And then he poses these questions. In verse 13, is Christ divided? In other words, is there disunity within the person of Jesus? Obviously not. And then he says, all of you who's rallying around me, was I crucified for you? It's amazing how many times people want to forsake the church, the institution, because maybe something happened and it hurt people's feelings. But listen, whatever happens to us negatively in a setting like this or in a community of faith where we expect people to do certain things and they, and they don't meet those ex expectations, or they might do something that really genuinely hurts us. 
Can I tell you that as far as I know, that I do not believe that Jesus goes back into the tomb. And that the whole thing is undone. Because that's kind of like what we think when we forsake something that he started. We didn't start it. He started the church. This is his idea. It's not our idea. We're part of the fulfillment of that idea. And he says, was I crucified for you? Was it me? If you want to gravitate toward me, answer that question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What name were you baptized in? And then that should be your loyalty. The one who was crucified for you should be your loyalty. Is Christ divided? Is there division, disunity within Jesus? He said, no, there's not. So if we are in the reflection of the Lord, what, what is he saying? We should reflect the unity of Christ. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except... except. I, I love this. When I'm reading this, I like... This just shows you that God was moving on him to write this. And he didn't go back and says, you know what? This is future scripture. I think I'll just cross that out. I could word this better because this is future Bible. I don't think he had any idea what he was writing would become part of sacred scripture. And, and I guess that's, anybody can have that opinion, right? He says, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, yes. I remember now. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember. You know, that's the favorite answer when lawyers are asking you questions. I don't remember that. I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Think about this. this. This is part of their culture. Their culture, a corrupt culture, but it was a culture where you just had loyalties. You had your personal loyalty. Over here was a shrine. Over here was a shrine. Over there was something to do. Over here was something to do. And everybody just kind of had their loyalty. And it's almost like the culture kind of seeped into it. Hey, we've got some great teachers. I think Paul is the best. No, I think Apollos is the best. I like Cephas. I like the way he explains things. And, and they just gravitate and Paul is dealing with this hero worship type stuff. Baptism could have been something that gravitated people like, oh, Paul baptized me. Yeah. And I've always wondered why people get autographs from Christians. Will you autograph my Bible for me? What is that? Oh, I'm sorry. I just got off on that a little bit. He said, there's select people that you people are gravitating to. He says, we don't need spread out loyalties here. We need one loyalty, and that's the person of Jesus. When he was saying, was Paul crucified for you? He was like saying, obviously not. Who was crucified for you? It was Jesus Christ. He was crucified. And we have to gauge our loyalty with that that is reserved for the Lord, not to be distributed out. He is Lord. He died on the cross for our sins. He's the one that deserves our worship. Nobody else has done that. Our loyalty should be centered on him. And Paul calls the believers in Corinth. I'm not quite finished here. We're going to go to verse 17 in just a moment. But he calls the people in Corinth to rally around one place, one location. There's one place. 
He says, where we can all be in harmony and in unity. And he's about to tell us that. For Christ did not send me to baptize. How about that? He said, I, my calling is not one to baptize. Now, obviously, he felt, he felt that he wasn't, he wasn't to do a lot of baptizing. He said, my calling was not to baptize, but it was to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence. And if there's anyone who had the training to preach with wisdom and eloquence, it would be him. But he saw that that would not work because that would not thoroughly explain the cross. And listen to this. He says, I did not do it with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that ought to make us all a little bit nervous. That as much as apologetics is important, it is not equivalent to the cross of Christ. The cross is the central part of the gospel. Verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased, listen to this, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And what was preached? Jews demand a sign, demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. I don't think we understand in their culture what that meant. The star us, the cross to the mindset, whether it was in Greece or Macedonia or Samaria, Galilee, wherever the preaching and up in Syria, when they heard that, they had a mindset that somebody who is crucified could not be a good person. And yet it was the message of Christ dying that way to save them that penetrated their mindset. It was the reality that the sinless Son of God did such as that to redeem them. He says, it's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want our praise team to come back up and the men who's going to serve communion to get ready. I want to finish with this. Back in May of 2001, I traveled to Russia for four weeks. And um, it's a, it was a memorable four weeks. I was, I flew from Atlanta and connected somewhere in Europe and on to Moscow. And from Moscow, from Atlanta to Moscow was seven time zones. Two days after I was there, I was told by the norm 
Edwards, the, the, the missions contact person that had me arranged as a teacher, he said, by the way, the person that's supposed to travel with you to Habaris can make it. We're going to drop you off at the airport. So here I was drop, being dropped off at the airport in Moscow to catch a flight to Habaris, which was seven time zones east of Moscow. It was as long a flight as the flight going to Moscow. And I learned real quickly how to be a good Russian person. You just pushed and shoved with the best of them. Because there was no order to lines. I realized that real quick as people was bouncing me around like a ping pong. I said, I can do this. I can do this with the best of them. I don't understand anything anybody's saying, but I can push and shove with the best of them. I got there and uh, I was going to teach three, uh, three weeks, two classes, homiletics and the book of Acts. And the registrar was a young lady. I'd say she was probably in her late 20s, early 30s. And I got to talking to her and she said she was from the Sakhalin Island. Anybody familiar with the Sakhalin Island? It belongs to Russia. It's off the coast. It's above Japan. It used to belong to Japan. Sometimes they shared it, but after World War II, Russia claimed all of it. But here's what she is telling me. She said, I said, I, I said, how'd you become a believer? She said, we were in a fishing village on the Sakhalin Island. I said, what religion was you? She said, we didn't have a religion. We were just trying to survive. We were trying to catch fish, eat, live, be healthy. And said this man from the Ukraine, a missionary, came to our village and put up posters. I'm going to be talking about the greatest gift that anyone could receive. She said, me and my family went, my parents took me. It's the first time we heard anything about Jesus. And says, something happened to us. We all got saved. So you never heard of him before? No. This Ukrainian brother goes to this island telling them a story they've never heard and they respond. What happens is the power of the Holy Spirit. I was really enjoying that story until she told me, by the way, that Ukrainian missionary is a student in your classes. And I said, well, gee, thanks. Here's a guy from the Ukraine that I need to sit down and let him teach me. But just a wonderful heart for God, willing to go beyond his culture, beyond because he knew, he knew that the preaching of the cross would penetrate the hearts of people. The answer to that question is, yes, a church, the church can survive in a corrupt culture. But here's my caution this morning as we stand together. Would you stand with me? Here, here's my caution. Paul would tell the people in Corinth that they need a standard that is Christ-like. And for us, the church, a church, cannot survive, let alone thrive, when the culture corrupts the church. 
And we're in a serious place of external pressure to make us conform to ideas that out, that's outside of this book. And we wanted to have this covenant, this covenant celebration of communion as a way of saying to the Lord, let me be your light. Shine through me. I give myself to you. I want to be that person called, sanctified, set apart for your purpose. Not for my purpose, not for what I'm comfortable with. He's called us to forsake our comfort zones, to go where he wants us to go, to do what he wants us to do. Lord, I pray this morning that this covenant with the cup and the bread that you've instituted as your body and blood broken and shed for us, that we take it and pledge again our loyalty to you and our desire to live our life totally for your purpose, not for what is easy, but for what you destined us to be. Change our hearts toward the challenges we face, Lord. Help us in those cases where we're overwhelmed to have faith to believe that your grace is sufficient for us and your power, that there's no match for your power.